This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome. You are listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 136, entitled The Miller-Smith Debate on Jesus' Preexistence, Cross-Examination and Closing Statements. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. On Sunday, August 16th, 2020, I participated in a debate on the topic of whether Jesus Christ consciously pre-existed his birth. I took the position, to no surprise to my regular listeners, that Jesus did not consciously pre-exist his birth. While my debate partner, Mr. Eric Miller, gracefully argued that Jesus did indeed pre-exist his birth. You can listen to the debate in its entirety on YouTube, and the link to the debate is in this episode's description and also within the notes. In this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will listen to the final parts of that debate. And these are the parts that many consider to be the most enjoyable aspects of a debate. We will get to hear the cross-examination where Mr. Miller asks me questions about my position. Then, I will get to cross-examine Mr. Miller. Finally, the debate will officially end with closing statements by Mr. Miller and then by me. I say the debate will officially end because there is an unofficial extra part that happened after the debate closed a audience Q&A I'll get to talk a little bit about that Q&A later at the end of this episode, so stay tuned for that. Before we listen to this section of the debate, I want to offer some exclusive insider perspectives. I had a variety of questions for the cross-examination prepared to use, depending on what Mr. Miller presented in his opening statement. I think I had something like 20 or so questions that I actually wanted to ask him, but I felt that the questions that I asked would best expose the fallacies of his position. At this point of the debate, I was still unclear of what Mr. Miller thought Jesus was in his preexistent form. That was not explicitly made clear to me. Of course, I affirm that Jesus preexisted as God's personified wisdom and God's personified word. And of course, God had Jesus in his mind, in his plans and in his purposes. So that would be a type of preexistence called notional preexistence. So in my cross-examination questions, I really tried to figure out what it was that the preexistent Jesus was in Mr. Miller's perspective. So I asked if Christ, that particular title, is what pre-existed Jesus' birth. 
since Mr. Miller had already stated that Jesus preexisted as the rock in the wilderness, according to 1 Corinthians 10.4, which says that the rock that followed them was Christ. Of course, I think that Paul understands that passage as a type, and he explains in 1 Corinthians 10 that he is interpreting the wilderness experience typologically. But Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 says that at the second coming, Jesus will appear a second time. And this indicates that Jesus only appeared one time prior to this, namely during Jesus' earthly ministry. So if Jesus only appeared once prior to the second coming, and that's obviously in his earthly ministry, then the writer of Hebrews doesn't think that Jesus was conscious, or at least as the Christ, prior to Jesus' earthly ministry. I also wanted to ask Mr. Miller about Jesus being the second Adam, the second human being, whom Paul explicitly states did not come before the first Adam from Genesis. So we had a nice back and forth on that particular point. Lastly, you're going to note that in my closing statement, I took advantage of having the final word to clarify the importance of understanding wisdom Christology for getting at the heart of many of these difficult verses in the New Testament. Furthermore, I reiterated my initial five points for my opening statement and my closing statement because after the course of the debate, those five points remained firmly established. Again, I want to offer thanks to Mr. Miller for participating in the debate with grace and love, and I wanted to thank Brandon Duke for serving as moderator with excellence. So without further ado, let's listen to the cross-examination and closing statements of our debate on Jesus' preexistence. So we've got eight, okay. we've got it set for eight minutes cross-examination. Um, okay. And I'm going to try to set this where it's going to automatically switch our viewers where they can see the, the speaker uh, as you guys talk. Um, so yeah, you'll have eight minutes to cross-examine Dr. Smith, uh, at which point we'll turn the tables and give him eight minutes to cross-examine you. And um, we're ready to begin whenever you'd like. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, so uh, let me see if I can. I need to see that. Okay, cool beans. Um, Dr. Smith, I want to get some clarification first. Based on some of the things that you said uh, in your last speech, um, you mentioned that um, the use of the term Christ refers to Christ as he exists on earth because of the use of that term. Is that correct? Uh was this in regard to Philippians two? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, yes. so what I what I was saying is that um, in Philippians two five, it commands the readers to have this attitude among themselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that phrase, Christ Jesus, um, refers to the anointed King who was given the the human name Jesus. Um, so that situ okay. I, I think that situates him in history. Cool. Um, uh, let me give you a counterexample and then get your, your thoughts in it, okay? Sure. Um, and I'll, I'll, phrase, I'll make sure to phrase the question. 
Um, so in Paul in Romans 4, 3, it says, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But when we read Genesis 15, uh, Abraham not, didn't have his name changed yet. He was still Abram. Uh, but Paul refers to him as Abraham because that's how he's come to be known. In the same way, uh, uh, could Paul be using the term Jesus, his given human name, but still be referring to a time before possibly uh, he was given that name? I think Paul could do a lot of things. I think with, with the Abraham examples that we actually have a clear precedent. We know that uh, Abraham, I mean, that's still the same person as, as Abram, okay? But if, if you're saying that uh, Christ Jesus formally refers to something, I, I still don't know what he expected his Philippian readers to understand by that. What is that clear precedent? What is that term, that terminology? I, I can't ask questions, I'm sorry. No, 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 and I, I understand it's a rhetorical question, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, uh, but let me, uh, I didn't, wasn't quite sure in your answer. You said Paul can do a lot of things. So do you believe that Paul could be referring to Jesus uh, before his given, he was given that name, just like he refers to Abraham before he was given the name Abraham? I, I don't think that's what Paul is, is referring to there. I don't think that's the, the natural way that you would read it. Um, he follows it up with a, the relative pronoun in verse 6, uh, who, uh, while existing, um, you know, in, in the Morphe Feu, in the form of God. Um, and so, you know, he, he doesn't, there is a good, there is a good Greek word, uh, pro-eparchon, for pre-existing, but Paul doesn't use that word. He uses just the basic word for existing or being or functioning uh, in the, as a present participle. Um, let me ask, let's, let's continue on Philippians 2. I think people might like to dig into some passages, and these are ones that people talk about a lot. Um, you, in your podcasts and teachings, make a lot of um, points about morphe, meaning attitude um, or character. And I gave several sources that show um, that it means basically the exact opposite when used in relevant extant Greek literature. Um, we see, for, in one other example that we see in Mark 16:12, that says Jesus appeared in a different morphe on the road uh, to Emmaus, being um, formed. Um, and in, in Euripides, in his um, uh, well, let me just let me just ask you that. So, in those sources that I gave you, why do you take? Why do you go against? You have the BDAG and the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, and then Daniel J. Fabricatori's extensive study, and they all say it's outward appearance. I mean, it's perceptible to the senses. Why? Why do you take the view then that it's attitude or character? Well, because I, I want to understand what what. Oh. Uh, I, I want to understand what Paul means by this, and, and and certainly I admit that this word has a lot of different meanings. So I'm not denying that it also. Uh, could mean that in certain contexts, but I'm interested to know what does Paul mean by this, okay, because Paul is not Euripides, and Paul's not these other persons, okay, and so when I try to see, okay, um, how else does Paul use this word, um, well, well I, I see it in verse 6, okay, he, is, he goes from the, the form of God, in verse 7, he takes the form of a, of a servant, I think is the suffering servant, um, and then I'm like, okay, well, I don't, nowhere else does Paul uh, use it in, in this particular way. We do have a, a similar uh, verb, morpho'o, that Paul does use in Galatians 4.17. Um, excuse me. Uh, let me get the, the correct. Uh, 4.19, excuse me. Uh, My children in whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Okay. And that, that Paul explains uh, wants the attitude and the character of Christ to be formed within that particular community. So I see, okay, Paul uses a cognate word in this particular way. That gives me some indication as to what Paul very likely means 
in, in Philippians and Galatians was written before Philippians. So I, I'm just trying to take Paul seriously in his own arguments on, on that uh, particular word. Yeah. Um, so do you disagree with the BDAG and with the, and here's, um, here's why I make the argument. If it were, I made it, I made an argument that it refers to outward appearance, glory, divine celestial glory. Jesus could not have had that on the earth, correct? No, My I, interpretation I think, I think, no, I, I think, I think Jesus, um, naturally as the, as Christ Jesus, as the King, um, you know, the, the king naturally bear, the Israelite king naturally bears the prerogatives of God. That's, that's a common teaching uh, within Judaism and in the Old Testament, a uh, king bearing uh, God's, God's glory. That's, there's, there's, you there's have outward glory that's perceptible to the, uh, um, that would have been perceptible to the senses. I'm just trying to, yeah, because I know time's fleeting. Well, hey, you it's, have two it's, minutes it's, left. Yeah, the thing is, when, I, when we see what's going on in Philippians 2, we have to see what Paul is saying and how he contrasts it, okay? Um, it, because the contrast um, is, is the, the morphe of, of a servant, okay? It's the character of a servant, and he, and he deliberately draws on very specific things that are said in Isaiah 52 and 53. So it's someone who has, again, how, how do you take the, 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 the glory of a, of a servant? What does that mean? What, what does that even, I don't really know what that means, but it, it makes much more sense that, again, he is telling the Philippians in verse five to have this attitude among yourselves. And there's no way they would even understand what it means for a pre-existent being, I don't, I don't know what it is at this point, um, to give up that and to be, become a servant. It does make sense to give up your privileges that you have right now um, to, to serve other people, which is how Paul defines it in chapter three and how Paul expects the, um, uh, the Roman citizens in Philippi to do at the end of chapter three. So your idea of this passage, maybe this is the last point on, on Philippians, um, is that Jesus had a functional equality with God, and he gave up at least some or all those prerogatives. How can you say that the Philippians believers wouldn't have understood what it would have been like for Jesus to give up his celestial glory, to become a man, but they would have understood what it would be like to give up functional equality with God, which nobody but the Messiah uh, would have had in the way that Jesus did, and then give that up, uh, those, those specific prerogatives. And you mentioned, for example, in your podcast, turning stones into bread or calling legions of angels. How would they have, under, how would they have been able to understand that any more than understand um, uh, my position? Um, well, your position would need to be uh, clearly established for them to even have it on their conceptual radar to consider. Um, but the thing is, in Philippians, uh, Paul not only sets up Jesus as an example in 2, 5 through 11, but Paul sets uh, himself as an example at the beginning of chapter 3, where Paul talks about all of the Jewish privileges that he has. Circumcised at the eighth day, uh, blameless. I was and we're out of time, but would, Eric, would you like for Dr. Smith to finish his answer? I think he wants to. <laughs> Yeah, I just, just just quickly so I don't take up the time there. Um, but but when Paul gives himself as an example the same thing, he's not talking about him giving up some preexistent glory. He's talking about actual privileges that he has that people can tangibly understand and how he gave them up in order to conform to the death of Jesus in order that he might attain uh, to the resurrection, which he tells the believers to do, I think in like 317, follow my example so that they also will uh, receive the resurrection according to 321 of Philippians. Okay, thank you both. All right, let's put the shoe on the other foot. Um, Dr. Smith, whenever you're ready, um, you have eight minutes to cross-examine Mr. Miller. Okay. Um, 
first, first of all, I just, I'm enjoying this. I hope everyone else is having fun. Uh, it might feel like we're <laughs> drinking from a water hose, but, uh, but, Indeed. Well, this is cool. um, but I think something that we, we notice here is that, hey, that this is a difficult concept, okay? And I think this is why we should have some grace when dealing with people that, that look at the subject of preexistence. Um, so again, I'm just, I really want to try to figure out um, what is it that, that, that the preexistent Jesus is? So I'm just, I'm going to ask some very specific question. Is the name Jesus the preexistent being? I don't know what that means. Can you qualify? Is, is the name Jesus preexistent or is the name Jesus preexistent being? What, what are you trying to ask? Yeah, because you, you think that, 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 that Jesus consciously preexisted. I want to know what is it, that, what was it that actually preexisted? So, is, I mean, does, does the name Jesus refer to the preexistent being? Yes. Okay, so, so how old was Jesus when he began his ministry? Mm, I guess it would have been in the 30s. Being, okay. So, so that would suggest that, that Jesus is not actually the name of the preexistent being if he was only 30 years old. Well, I, I, I appreciate the, the way you're trying to formulate the question, but when I understand you just to ask his ministry, I'm understanding you to say, when did he begin his earthly ministry? You already know that I believe that Jesus Christ preexisted, and I just answered that. I think that the name Jesus refers to the preexistent person. So Jesus started his preexistent his ministry when he was on his, in his 30s, but I don't believe he started uh, to exist uh, uh, at, at his conception. And just in the same way that Paul in um, 1 Corinthians 10.4 can use Christ to refer back to the preexistence, and I believe that Jude um, can refer back to Jesus um, in the preexistence. Uh, we can, um, even Paul, I think, I think we all can use Christ and Jesus to refer back to the preexistence. Um, and again, I think it's just, an over, I don't want to take any more time, but I, don't, I think it's an overreading of the term. And just like in the same way, I'll just make this one point, just like in the same way that Paul can refer to Abram as Abraham before he became Abraham. We can refer to Christ Jesus, an honorific title, and then the name we know him as um, before he became preexistent. I talked about, if I said my mom and, uh, inspired me in the way that she finished college, would that sense make sense if I hadn't been born yet, if she wasn't my mom when she finished? Of course, because it's an honorific, and it's how I, it's how I know her. In the same way, we know Jesus Christ, Jesus, and that's why he speaks of him that way in the preexistence, in my opinion. Okay. Um, okay, so let, me, let me shift to the, the title Christ, Christos, or, okay. or Mashiach in Hebrew. Um, so, like, how many, you know, is, is Christ, the, the, the person of Christ or the being of Christ, um, did he appear in the Old Testament? The, the person? Did, 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 how about Christ? Did, did Christ uh, appear uh, in the Old Testament? I'm moving away from the given human name, and I'm, I'm moving to the title Christ. Uh, did, did, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm, okay. trying, I'm still trying to figure out what is this preexistent thing. Okay, so well, let me answer both those questions, because you've asked that a number of times now. I, wasn't, I didn't get that directly in the Q&A, but um, I'll, I'll address both those questions. If by Christ you mean the person, yes, he did. Now, I, uh, the, the same person that was there with the Israelites, the same person that was with God's creation, the same person that was inspiring the prophets, the same person that was, you know, giving, that uh, was praying the Israelites, destroying and rescuing, that's the same person who was made incarnate 2,000 years ago. Same person, okay? What did he preexist as? Well, I would like to know, <laughs> because the Bible doesn't give us a lot of specifics, but we would have to say, at a certain point, he was at the very least incorporeal. And I'm going to give you two 
again, this is theological speculation because the Bible doesn't, you know, elaborate on this. But I'll, if, so go if, ahead, if I may, may I, may I ask a, a, another, another question? I just, it's, it's, it's kind of deterring off from the question that I was trying to ask. Um, is, is, that, is that okay? Okay. I'll interrupt what you want. Okay, I, I, I'm very respectful with that. Um, uh, oh, I, I don't want, <laughs> okay, um, okay, so like, um, did Christ appear in the Old Testament, yes or no? Yes, the okay. person, Christ, the person. Okay, so, so why is it that Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28 says that Jesus will appear a second time for salvation if he's already refer, appeared multiple times uh, in the Old Testament. It seems to make sense that Jesus appeared once in his earthly ministry, and he will appear a second time in his second coming. Yeah. So again, if you look at, it, if you look at the larger context of what the uh, authors are talking about with regards to preexistence, the fullness of who Jesus is was not put out until the Incarnation 2,000 years ago. But that doesn't mean that Jesus, didn't, that Jesus came into existence 2,000 years ago. And that, that, I mean, that, that's the point that I'm trying to drive with that specific question. Okay. Um, did Jesus pre-exist Adam? Yes. Okay. How, can you explain me how the second Adam is older than the first Adam? Uh, can you explain to me how, <laughs> it's so funny because Jesus kind of almost asked the same question of the Jews when they say, well, whose son is he? Well, how can he be David's son if he's his Lord? <laughs> he's the second Adam because Jesus took on flesh and became a human being and he um, uh, it even talks about the second Adam coming from heaven. Jesus took on flesh, he became a human being, and he did what the first Adam failed to do, which was obey God in perfect obedience, die, and he was able to be the uh, um, uh, corresponding price or a ransom for mankind. So the, the first and second Adam doesn't have, it's not referring to a chronological order. It's referring to, Two okay, here's, uh, I'm, I'm sorry? Sorry, just want to mention two minutes left. Sorry. Okay. Well, let me let maybe that maybe that does it. And you want to go on? But at the, the first Adam is uh, is clearly referring to the creation. The second Adam is referring to the man, to Jesus Christ who took on flesh to become uh, made in the human likeness, as Philippians two talks about. Um, but but Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen forty six that the spiritual is not first, but the natural and then the spiritual. Paul directly says that the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, referring to Jesus. He says that spiritual is not first. The natural is first. So I, yeah, what I don't... Is that the question? <laughs> well, no, no, it's, it's not a question. It's just, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's leading to, to, to a question. Um, okay. I, I just, uh, well, I, I'm going to take this in a different way. Um, in the Old Testament, I, I mentioned there were, uh, 1,455 occurrences of the Hebrew noun, devar, the word for word. Um, is, in any of those 1,400 plus occurrences, do you see uh, a conscious, distinct person from God? No, I don't, I, I don't think so. Okay. Not that I have um, Okay, so, so when, when John 1 is, is saying that in the beginning was the word, like directly quoting from Genesis 1-1 in the Septuagint, um, he's, he's referring readers back to that word, which is, you know, uh, God's spoken utterance or his personified speech, um, isn't he naturally referring to the readers to that understanding of the word and not as a conscious yeah. person alongside God? Yeah, I'm glad you asked this question because I wanted to highlight what I think is an inconsistency in your argument based on the questions that you were asking me. I tried to 
emphasize the fact that the BDAG, the Theological New Testament, the Dictionary of the New Testament, Daniel J. Fabric and Tory, are all saying that in almost all of the occurrences of the word morphe in the extant Greek literature, it's referring to outward appearance or form. And your answer to me is, well, I'm trying to take seriously what Paul is saying. Okay, well, by the way, we are, we are at time, what, but what, Dr. Smith, you want uh, Mr. Miller to finish, finish the please, answer? Please, please, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm trying to take seriously what John is saying. If John is allowed to develop the point that he's making in the same way that you think that Paul is allowed to develop the point that he's making with Morphe. Boy, we need more cross-examination next time, for sure. <laughs> Thank you both. <laughs> Thank you both. <laughs> Okay, so next up, we've got scheduled the closing statements. You each have seven minutes. And uh, Mr. Miller, you're scheduled to go first if you're ready. Okay, thank you very much. So again, uh, you'll begin. You'll remember that at the uh, uh, beginning of my speech, I said that I was going to defend uh, two contentions, one being that uh, Jesus did not come into existence at his conception, but came into existence at a point prior to his conception, and that there were no good reasons to think that Jesus did not have a, uh, an existence uh, prior uh, to this conception. Um, Dr. Smith gave several arguments this evening with regards to wisdom Christology, um, the name Christ, the name Jesus, and so forth, and I hope you're able to understand why, based on the responses that I gave, because I can't make new arguments here, um, that why I do not believe that that it works as an a priori argument against um, pre-existence. They, uh, um, the Greeks believed in the pre-existence of souls, and yet they used terms like birth all the time. Um, we talked about how the, any of the authors are free to use their material and develop it further um, as they uh, choose. Uh, Dr. Smith really did not have an answer to um, the Abram Abraham question that I gave. Um, and, uh, I, I, and with regards to wisdom Christology, I gave examples of how Paul um, uh, developed further the rabbinic um, ideas of the moving water source, and then in Colossians, um, uh, talking about how it speaks of creation being for Christ, uh, showing that they were not slaves to uh, any anterior idea of wisdom Christology, but that they were uh, able to develop those points further, including make points about preexistence, um, if uh, they so chose to do so. Um, there are lots of passages that we didn't get to. Um, normally, in debate, we would slide those across, but I understand what Dr. Smith is saying. We, there was just a lot of passages and not a lot of time, so uh, hopefully we can develop those further. But um, I want to transition here for a moment to speak about the importance of preexistence. Um, I believe it is impossible to fully appreciate the perfect person and work of Christ by understanding that Jesus did not come into existence when he was conceived, but existed with God prior to his conception. Uh, Jesus was not simply a man whom God picked up to do a job. I believe that makes a mockery of John 3, 16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son. And whosoever believes in him should not perish, as well as um, other passages, like 1 John 4, 19, that says, For God so loved the world that he, um, sorry, <laughs> that herein was the love of God made manifest in us, but, uh, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. What sacrifice is involved if Jehovah just picked someone and had them die for the sins of mankind? I will tell you, the sacrifice involved is that Jesus was with Jehovah from the beginning, and they loved each other from the very beginning. And Jesus left behind his home, his father, and his glory to enter into this ugly, cruel world like one of us. That's a sacrifice on the part of Jehovah and Jesus. Uh, furthermore, Colossians tells us that everything was made for him and that redemption comes 
by the personal mediation of Christ, this also speaks to the importance of seeing Jesus as the centrality of everything. You can't look at the stars in the sky or even the sky or, or anything else and not understand that Jesus Christ uh, 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 is essential because he was the one uh, through whom God created. Preexistence also helps us to understand Christ's patience, wisdom, provision, and obedience in the history of Israel. He, at God's command, helped the shepherd prune and save them at key points until the time of his arrival had come. Uh, these are not arguments for pre-existence. I'm arguing from pre-existence, just in case anyone wonders this is a new argument. Um, and it gives new meaning to verses like Matthew 23, 37, which says, um, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you. How often have I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers their chicks under her wings, but you are not willing? On the one hand, Trinitarians are likely to just not think about pre-existence as a doctrine, uh, separate from Christ being the second person of the Trinity. Well, so Simeons often seem to be fearful of pre-existence because of the theological questions it raises and what they see as uh, similar to the Trinitarian dogma. But it's so often the case that truth is fundamental. The Bible teaches that the Father alone is the only true God and that Jesus is His Son. The Bible also teaches that Jesus existed with God in God's form before being made in human likeness. We have a lifetime to wrestle with these questions and how they work together, but we must follow the text where it leads and trust God as we work out the fruit of what we have found in this world. Can I have the time? <laughs> Yeah, sorry, you've still got uh, three minutes. Cool uh, I love this quote by Alexander Campbell, which says, We have no system of our own, nor of others, to substitute in lieu of the reigning system. The only aim at substituting the New Testament in lieu of all crazy existence, whether Mohammedan, pagan, Jewish, Presbyterian, we wish to call Christians to consider that Jesus Christ has made them kings and priests to God. We advocate neither Calvinism, Arminianism, Arianism, Socinianism, Trinitarianism, Unitarianism, Deism, or Sectarianism, but New Testamentism. This grand vision begins not first with theological debates, though I don't know about you, but this was a blast, uh, but in a willingness to approach the scriptures and approach those with whom you disagree with a humble heart. And I hope those of you who are listening, therefore, will consider my case for pre-existence with an open mind and an open Bible, and I hope that we can all continue to search out these issues uh, with humble and loving hearts. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Miller. Um, and uh, well taken, your last point, for sure. Um, okay, let me reset my clock, and Dr. Smith, you'll have seven minutes as well, whenever you're ready. Yeah, I wanted to thank um, Eric Miller um, for, I think, demonstrating how we can uh, dialogue and even disagree on things that are very passionate to us in a way that is loving and respectful uh, and gentle. Uh, I don't think a lot of debates do that, and I think people dismiss the persons or the contents because of that. Uh, but you know what? You can respectfully disagree um, and, and still uh, show Christian love, and hopefully we've been able to demonstrate that um, you know, as, as an example. Um, you know, I, I really feel like my initial five points still stand very, very strong. Uh, I mean, my first point was that Jesus is not there in the Old Testament, and I still, I've asked this a couple of times, I still don't know exactly what it is that Jesus was prior to that. He, he talked about uh, origins, doctrine of the pre-existence of souls. That is a Greek idea. That is not a biblical idea. The Bible does not teach the pre-existence of souls or Jesus a pre-existent soul that, that came into human, like there's no, like Philippians doesn't say that, Colossians doesn't say that. Like that, that's just, I mean, it's, it's an interesting example, but it's not what the Bible says. And I'm interested in what the Bible says. Um, 
He's, he's just not there. And, and why is he not there? Well, that was my second point. Is it because he is the promised descendant of Abraham, the descendant of Judah, the descendant of Israel? He is the prophet from among the Israelites. And let me tell you, of course, the, the descendant of David, which is the major factor, that's a major thing in the New Testament. Um, and, and there are no sons that are older than their ancestors. I want you to think about that. There are no descendants, like if Jesus is the descendant of Abraham, that in the Bible that are older than their ancestors. That doesn't make any sense. A son, by definition, is someone who is younger than their father. Okay, and Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, which means he's a lineal descendant coming from Abraham, a descendant of Judah, a lineal descendant from Judah, from David, etc., etc. Okay, and that's why he's not there in the Old Testament because he's not born yet. He's not there. Okay, um, you know, and I talked about the, the verb yinao, um, which does mean to bring someone into existence, and that is, is just used over and over and over. Matthew, Luke, John, uh, by Paul. Um, that's what happened. Jesus was brought into existence. And the places where Yanao was used of Jesus are not in reference to Genesis chapter 1 or the creation of the heavens and the earth. They're all used at the birth of Jesus. That is when Jesus began to exist, okay? I was born, I can admit this, in 1984. I was not around in the year 1980 or then the year 1970 because I was not yet brought into existence, okay? Jesus was brought into existence at his birth, okay? So anything prior to that can't be literal existence because you can't literally exist prior to being brought into existence. And that's what the verb yinao means, to bring something into existence, to father, okay? And since uh, Mr. Miller already admitted that notional preexistence in God's mind is a possibility on the table, I'm thinking that makes best sense out of the evidence that we have, is that if Jesus was brought into existence at a time that we can all see that the New Testament writers are clearly and unambiguously saying with clear straightforward passages that are not textually questionable, um, then notional preexistence seems to make the most sense of the things prior to that. Of course, we also have um, the Logos and Wisdom Christology, and I've, again, demonstrated, and, and he admitted that uh, the word, word, uh, devar, or even Logos, um, at least in the Old Testament, in all 1,400 occurrences, never refers to a conscious, distinct person alongside God. Okay, so to say that the writer of the Gospel of John is changing that would actually be to contradict the Old Testament. It is to, to change the definition completely, when in fact, the writer of the Gospel of John is saying, in the beginning was the word. He's drawing us to Genesis chapter 1. And so I, I am really trying to encourage people um, to look at the New Testament and see, look, it continues what the Old Testament is saying. It is in line with what the Old Testament is saying. It is in continuity, not in contradiction with the Old Testament, okay? Uh, I, would, I would have a hard time as a believing Christian to say that the New Testament writers contradict definitions in the Old Testament. So I'm trying to read these things um, along the lines of uh, continuity, okay? Uh, of course, uh, wisdom being a personification, she's not an active person. Um, and so uh, I, I did mention, and I wish I had some time to go through and to look at all these things, um, but you know, I'd mentioned that this sort of idea, this Jewish idea that, that God's wisdom, God's personified interaction with his creation, God's wise in involvement, um, that was embodied into actual human beings. We see this in Proverbs, okay? Sirach actually talks about wisdom as a personification, and then we'll later say in Sirach chapter 50 that it's Simon the high priest 
who was an actual high priest that lived in the second century BC. But no one thinks that Simon the high priest literally pre-existed his birth as the mediator of creation. No one reading Proverbs thinks that the women in Proverbs 31 who lived, or Persian women, literally pre-existed their birth as the wisdom through which God created, okay? Philo will say that wisdom is a mother figure through whom God created the world. And then Philo will go on to say that wisdom is Sarah, Abraham's wife. And Philo didn't think that, that Sarah is, is pre-existent as a conscious person. It's just that Sarah embodies God's wise intention with the world. And so if Philo, or sorry, if Proverbs can say that God's personified wisdom can be embodied in human beings, and if this is picked up in Sirach, that wisdom personified can be embodied in Simon the high priest. And if Philo, at the beginning of the first century, a contemporary with Paul, can say that God's wisdom can be embodied into Sarah, then the New Testament writers are in continuity with Judaism by saying that Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom or the embodiment of word, okay? And so I, I'm hoping that uh, the case that I'm making really helps to situate the New Testament writers in continuity with these great strands uh, of interpretation. And again, wanting to take seriously things that Paul said. Paul did say um, that these things are types. These things, referring back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, he's referring to all those things that Paul's talking about. Our fathers were all there. He's talking to Gentiles in Corinth. Their fathers were not literally there. He's speaking typologically, okay? And so I want to take all these writers seriously into what they say, um, but I encourage uh, readers to really to consider what it would mean if Jesus is the human embodiment of the way that God wisely wants to interact with the world. You could read Proverbs and see how wisdom is defined, and you could see that almost every single thing that is said about wisdom in the book of Proverbs is now said about Jesus in Matthew, in Luke, in John, in 1 Corinthians, in Colossians, and in Hebrews. It is all over the place. So thanks, everybody, for coming out today. I really appreciate it. And uh, again, thanks to uh, Eric and Brandon for uh, participating uh, in this lively debate. God bless you all. Certainly. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Smith. And uh, likewise, my, my thanks to Eric. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we listen to the unreleased Q&A session that took place after the debate with the audience submitted questions answered by both Mr. Miller and by me. So please look forward to that episode with previously unreleased portion of the debate. It's the post-debate Q&A. If you've enjoyed the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God, and the humanity of Jesus. You can support the podcast for absolutely free by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends and by writing an honest review on iTunes. If you would like to donate to the podcast, you may check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. Special thanks to Dustin Williams for post-production and for editing the Biblical Unitarian podcast. Thank you very much. Until next time, folks, thanks for listening to the podcast, and I am Dustin Smith. Please be safe and take care.